You know, during this, this pandemic, there have been a lot of different words and phrases that have been coined that have been part of our, uh, have become part of our culture, unfortunately. And uh, some things that we've used, that we've used, per, um, probably we've used sparingly that are perhaps we're a little more sensitive to, I think, things like face coverings and social distancing and, you know, that. But, you know, a key phrase that's, that came up very early on when they, when they shut things down was defining what's essential and not essential. And that, that was kind of interesting what they did there. And the term essential business came up, of course, and during those early days, you might remember that, uh, which just seems like yesterday, that basically they shut down churches, they shut down restaurants and, uh, you know, barbershops and hair salons and, and things like that. And they said basically define things like, uh, I guess, you know, grocery stores as being essential and, you know, pump, getting gas at the pump being essential, things like that. And, and so as that was unfolding, the first few days, you know, people were okay with that. First few weeks, people were okay with that. After a while, it started to get old on people. We're wondering, hey, when are we going to come out of this? And When's everything going to be essential then? And, and so, you know, we, we, it just basically, you know, the big, what, probably the, the thing I'm going to come out of uh, this, this year with is just this fact of essential business. Now, essential, that basically the government was defining what was necessary and critical. And we think about the word essential, it, 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 you know, there are words synonymous with that, like critical and fundamental and must-have and requisites and, and uh, necessity and things of that nature. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that our president came out, I guess it was May or so, as he, he, he was appealed by, you know, thousands of Christians about, hey, you need to do something about churches being shut down. Churches need to meet. And he basically came out. You remember this? It was on the front pages of all the news outlets. And he basically said, church is essential. And praise God for that. I'm glad that somebody said that. But I think we can go further by saying, not only is church essential, getting saved is essential. Amen? Uh, getting saved is essential. Reading the Bible is essential. Praying to God is essential. And by the way, more than church being essential, being in church is essential. Amen? I think that's essential there. I think more than just opening the doors of the church, I think the fact that people need to get to church, that's essential. By the way, I think beyond all that, Jesus Christ is essential. Amen? Jesus Christ is essential for our relationship with Him. Jesus Christ is essential as our means to get to the Father through prayer. So there's a lot of things we talk about that's essential. And writing to the church at Corinth and getting to our verses here tonight, we've got to remember that Paul, before he got to verses 13, 14, he's addressed a large number of issues. He's dealt with doctrinal issues. He's dealt with ethical issues. He's dealt with moral issues. He's dealt with social issues. He's dealt with, with uh, relational issues. I mean, you name it, anything that could affect the well-being and the spirit of a church or the spirituality of a church, Paul had to address every one of those things. And for the sake of being redundant, just a reminder of this, I mean, he had to deal with, he had to deal with, right at the beginning about the preaching of the gospel. There were those who said that the gospel was losing its steam. Listen, we've been at it for 2,000 years. The gospel still is powerful. This gospel still says it is the power of God into salvation. And so Paul had to remind them about the preaching of the gospel and about the necessity of preaching. There were those at Corinth who felt like the relevance of preaching had, had kind of had declined and he had to point out to them that the relevancy of preaching had not declined he had to deal with relational conflicts it's amazing here was a church that started off loving one another and encouraging one another but after paul left it just started to have all these different things happening because just conflicts happen and i think we just understand that it's just like it's like when two objects come together to closely come together there's always going to be friction there so there's conflicts in the church you know he had addressed early on about the judgment seat of christ and rewards because there was just such a such a such a 
a carnal spirit in the church, he had to deal with that, that aspect. Remind him, hey, don't mess up so that when you get the judgment seat of Christ that you don't have rewards there. Uh, he had to remind them about their moral behavior, and he spent two chapters on that. He had to remind them about the fact that the church has to be very strong and it has to exercise discipline at a certain time. He had to address Christian liberty and, and weakened consciences. And that's a, you know, we don't preach much about that, but that was a big issue and a reminder to us that, you know, that we have to be very careful, those of us who have a stronger convictions about things and we know what's right, and, and, uh, but we have to be careful that, that we don't offend the, the, the conscience of a weaker brother in a certain area there that will make them to sin. Uh, he talked about sins of presumption in chapter 10 and temptations. He talked about, he spent two chapters dealing with the, the persona and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which had gotten perverted along the way. He had to talk, deal with the right use of spiritual gifts. And then he spent an entire chapter, chapter 15, dealing with the doctrine of the resurrection. First, the resurrection of Jesus Christ as being a critical critical aspect of the gospel, the foundation aspect of the gospel, and then about the fact about the resurrection of believers because because the, the Grecians did not believe in the resurrection of the body. They just felt like the body died and, and deteriorated in the grave. He had to talk about the glory of the resurrection there. Now he does all that, and as we get into chapter 16, especially as we end it in verse 22, I mean, Paul is writing chapter 16 as he does, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians as he does 2 Corinthians, with the idea that there's the imminent return of Jesus Christ. I think he believed very earnestly about the imminent return of Jesus Christ. I believe the same thing. I believe right now that we may be living in the day and age that it could be during our generation that Jesus would come. And that would be a great thing if it happened during our time. But Paul lived with the idea that Jesus Christ could return. So, you know, he gets in chapter 16, he deals with giving and, and setting aside monies. And then, as we said in the last two weeks, he kind of just stops here, I think, right around verse 10. And from verse 10 until we get to about uh, verse 19 here, for about nine verses, ten verses, he takes time to acknowledge his friends in the ministry. He says, you know what? Ministry is not all about processes. And ministry is not all about doing things. And ministry is not just checking things off the list. Ministry is about people. Amen? He says it's about people. It's about people we care for. And he's talked about people he cared for. And specifically people that were kind of on a, on a, on a, on a horizontal level with him that were serving the Lord and that were having an impact in people's lives. Uh, Timothy and Apollos and next time we'll look at Stephanus and the household of Acha his household and Fortunatus and Achaicus and we'll look at Achille and Priscilla there as we go along. I mean, he had to take time to mention these people. And so before we get to verse 13, 14, he's, he talks about his acknowledgement of Timothy as a son in the faith. And then he talked about Apollos, which I think it was very commendatory that he talked about Apollos as being a peer and, and perhaps probably someone stronger than him that he respected and he wanted them to receive him well and, and so forth like that. And I think something happened there because you'll notice it seems like his train of thought got shifted because he, he stops it at the end of verse 12. We get to verse 13, 14, and his thought process is shifted. Now, that happens to you and he, me, I think. Uh, if you're like me, you pray, and you're praying about something, and God puts something in your mind, right? And if God puts something in your mind, all of a sudden you're praying, you're shifted, and you're praying about that other thing, or God reminds you something that you forgot about, or God puts something in your heart that's an answer to prayer. I mean, I just, this, this last several days, things that just got very heavy. A lot of things on my plate there, and I was praying over some, and God put some things in my mind to clarify with me just some things I've been praying over for several weeks, and, and just at the right time, God said that, and, uh, and I do this a lot for preparation messages. Sometimes I just get to be honest with you, I just, you get to the place where you're kind of brain dead, and you just, you're not soul dead, but you kind of feel like you're brain dead, and uh, you know, you're just coming out of just preaching all day Sunday, and then you get to Monday, and Mondays are not day offs, Mondays are just kind of getting things in motion, so you're getting your, your thought process going, and getting the Spirit of God working you, so you're thinking about where, which direction God wants you to go by, but 
between Tuesday and Friday on things, and, and God's just kind of working on that matter. And so you may be praying, God, change your mind. Well, Paul's commanding the, the church at Corinth about Timothy and Apollos, and he's about to get to Stephanus, and he's about to get to, uh, he's about to, get to Fortunatus and Achaicus, and he's going to get to Kill and Priscilla and so forth there. And in the midst of all this, verse 13, 14, it seems like it's out of place. You know, the Holy Spirit speaks to Paul's heart, and he just stops right there kind of abruptly, and he gets into just addressing the church at Corinth now. He's addressing them, and you'll notice here, as he addresses them, he addresses them in the area of what I call essential business. He has five things he talks to the church about here in verses 13 to 14 that you would think, you know, he should have brought this up earlier, or he could have left it to the end to close off his letter, but for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit spoke to his heart and said, right now, Paul, I want you to put these things down. I've got five critical, essential traits of a, of a church or of a Christian that's on fire for God they need to have. Or maybe it might say this way, five essential practices uh, that are essential for us uh, before the Lord comes that we should live out. And so for whatever reason, Paul just stops abruptly there. And notice verses 13, 14. He gives these verses, which if you've read them many times like I have, they probably have inspired you. They just kind of make you stop there. And, and in the middle of chapter 16, just kind of jumps out at you from, uh, you know, from, from the rest of the verses and kind of convicts you. I mean, words like watch ye and stand fast in the faith and quit you like men and be strong and let all your th- things be done with charity. I mean, it just kind of jumps out at you there. And you're kind of wondering, okay, now, is he recapping? everything he said in the uh, the previous verses in chapter 16. I mean, what's Paul's purpose here? And I just really could tell you that I think the Holy Spirit of God was working through Paul and speaking to him that he just some things that he said right now. You've said some good things about Timothy. You've made them think about Apollos. And before you get to these next set of friends, there's some essential business you need to tell the church. There's some essential business they need to get fired up about. So Paul is fired up and he wants to tell us, as he told the church there, about essential business for fervent Christian living before Jesus Christ comes. Now, I, I think tonight, I think that after studying through this and reading through this a little bit more and praying over it, I really believe that these same five practices that Paul gives us here, they're so practical. They're so practical. They're so, they're so simple. And they're so genuine that I think if every church member embraced it, if every Christian, whether new Christian or seasoned Christian, embraced it, I think we would be on revival all the time. I think we'd be a church on revival all the time. I think we'd see souls saved all the time. I think our church would be on fire. I think the devil would be running scared from our church because he'd see a church that's got all the fortifications it needs. I think he'd see a church where God is answering prayer. I think he'd see a church where the members are in love with each other and people love serving Jesus Christ and people rising up to ministry and and and, and when you ask people to do things, they don't hesitate and say, well, let me think about it. They'll say, yes, sir, I'm on it. I'm going to do it right away. I'm going to serve God. I want to do my best for Jesus. I think if a church, if every church member embraced these five practices, it would transform our church and transform churches, by the way, transform communities and transform communities all of a sudden, instead of being known for marijuana dispensaries and being known for COVID-19 infections and being known for gang-related deaths and being known for crime activity and things, maybe some things would change and a church that could be so transformational that it could affect its community and its entire county. Think with me what God, how God can be glorified where it's not, it's, not a, it's not an addictions program that's changing people's lives. It's the power of the gospel. Jesus Christ is making a difference. So tonight, go with me if you would please and notice these five essential practices that Paul gives us. Number one, we will write this down. The first thing Paul gives us, he says, be guarded, be guarded. He says, watch ye. 
The idea there of watching, many of you know this, the idea of watching, especially in those days, and even going back many hundreds of years before that, has the idea of cities and their fortification. Cities had watchmen. Watchmen would be posted on the wall. Watchmen would, would be there watching the city daytime and evening. The most critical time would be evening because it is dark and, uh, and the enemy could be very stealthy. They could hide in the darkness. And of course, at nighttime, that's you know, our, the way we're biologically wired. We go to sleep at night and we sleep the night until, until the early morning there. But you know, watchmen have to stay up. So they're kind of like, the, they're like kind of the, the midnight shift, the graveyard shift. They've got to be awake and they've got to be alert. And they've got to be ready for things. So they've got to be very careful that they're paying attention, they don't get distracted, that their eyes aren't playing tricks, they don't start getting sleepy and lethargic. And so the idea of watching was very, 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 very well known to everybody there. And as nightfall came, they, you know, people, citizens, wanted to be able to put their heads to, uh, on their pillows and sleep at night, knowing that the watchmen were doing their job. So we know that this idea of a watchman is, is, is there. So the first essential practice Paul is talking about here is the practice of watching. Now we know this from our Bible. That sleepiness or complacency during a watch is very dangerous. And that we're going to see that addressed here in this first pointer. Sleepiness or complacency can be very dangerous during a watch. And so what does the Bible say? Paul just said, watch ye. Now that sounds so general. Watch what? Well, I think there's something specifically as we drill deep beneath the surface of Scripture that God talks about. Would you write this down? First of all, we need to watch our tongues. We need to watch our tongues. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalms 141, verse 3. He said, set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Did you notice that was a prayer request? Did you notice he knew he didn't have enough self-discipline? He did not have enough spirit control to set a watch over his own mouth? He asked God. He said, Lord, set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. We need to set a watch over our tongues. You may have heard this before, but if you haven't, it's good repetition or good, good information to learn. But we have to think about the process of how things come out. Everything always starts with our minds. Everything starts with our mind by what we hear, what we read, what we see, or how we feel. It begins with our minds. And then it goes from our minds and it goes into our mouth. And we say something based upon that impression. And from our mouth, it leads to emotion. I think about David there in, in 1 Samuel 27, 1. It began with his mind, and then it went to his mouth, and then it went through his motion. He said, there's nothing better for me than I should flee because Saul's coming after me. That began in his mind. He had this perception that Saul was going to take him. And so he said in his mouth, there's nothing better for me. So he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take, take things into my own hands. So it goes from our minds, our mouth, and, uh, and to our motion. And David, as we know here, as we, as he's, he's the author of Psalms 141. He was very concerned during a time when Absalom was after him and he was under great stress. And remember from years before when Saul was chasing him and he was under great stress, he knew that he knew that he had the proclivity to sin with his mouth just like every one of us. So earlier before that, in Psalms 39, listen to something else David said. In Psalms 39 verse 1, David said this, I said, I will take heed to my ways, that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. I think when David said about the bridle, that gave the seed thought perhaps to, to James when he wrote James chapter, chapter 3 about the tongue. Kind of interesting how they all dovetail together there. In James chapter 3, uh, uh, James gives us in verses 1 to 11 the anatomy of the tongue. He tells us about our tongues. Listen to what he says here. Okay, I'm going to give a recap. The tongue is a fire 
a world of iniquity. He says, it is such a fire, it is set on fire of hell. He says about our tongue, it is a little member, yet boasteth great things. He said, behold, how great a matter, a little member killing. He says, it's just a little organ in our body. It's just a small organ, and yet it can set the world on fire, and it's set on fire of hell. He speaks about our tongues. He says, no man can tame the tongue. He says, it is unruly evil. That's kind of interesting. He says, it is unruly evil. And then he said, in other words, it can't be tamed. It can't be ruled. It can't be held in check. And then he describes it as like a venomous serpent. He says, it is full of deadly poison. I mean, let's just be honest. We read our Bibles. We know from our own experience and perhaps encounters we have that our tongue is, you know, our tongues do more to get us into trouble than anything else. An unbridled tongue is constantly critical and sharp. It is, it can be nosy and gossipy. It can cut loose and enjoy tearing others down. An unbridled tongue complains and looks for evil. I mean, you look at all these type of things. It's just there. And so David was realizing, you know what? I better set a watch over my tongue. And I think as we study scriptures, we think about that, that encouragement Paul, because they had that problem at the church at Corinth. I mean, they had, if you go to chapter three, I mean, they're just ripping each other apart. I mean, they're tearing each other apart over crazy things and, and there are factions in the church. And one says, I'm a follower of Apollos. Another said, I'm a follower of Cephas. Another said, I'm a follower of Paul. And Paul said, listen, let's put that all to rest. Listen, we don't, we're not followers of people. Jesus Christ is who we follow. And he had to set things in motion there to get them right about it. But we have to understand that we must set a watch over our tongue because of these proclivities. Listen to what Proverbs 16.27 says. Proverbs 16.27 says this, An ungodly man diggeth up evil, and in his lips there is a burning fire. There's a proclivity to sin with our tongue. And so we have to understand, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So he said, watch ye. We need to set a watch over our tongues. But notice, secondly, we need to set a watch against temptations. Go with me to Matthew 26 for a minute, please. Matthew chapter 26. We must set a watch over temptation. I want you to read these verses with me. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, very familiar passage. He took Peter, James, and John with him there. He goes to prayer. We know he prayed at least one hour at a time, and probably three hours total. And this is what we find, verse 40. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep. They were supposed to be watching. And he says to Peter, What? Could you not watch me one hour? That's a convicting question, amen? What? Could you not watch with me one hour? And by the way, let me just, this, this is a future message I'll be preaching, but I, I think the Lord is telling us that a minute of an hour prayer is required to get victory over sin. I believe a minimum one hour of prayer, concentrated, uninterrupted prayer, is how we get vision. How our lives get changed. How God does a work in our heart. I believe anything less than that, we've not, we've not, we've not prevailed. I think that's what he's telling us, but that's a whole different message. He goes on to verse 41, he says, now, Peter, watch and pray. Watch and pray. That ye enter not into temptation. Now, he knew that we have a proclivity to be seduced by temptation. He said, watch ye, watch and pray that ye enter not to temptation. And he said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, just a reminder, because we have young people watching, I knew believers. God doesn't tempt any man. God is not the source of temptation. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust. 
And when lust is conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And when sin, when it's finished, it bringeth forth death. Now, we have to understand something there. God allows us to be tempted, but he never allows us to be tempted above that which you're able. Now, Paul already talked about that in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God allows temptation, but he never allows us to be tempted more than we, we are able. And by the way, God makes a way of escape. That's a promise in the Bible, amen? God makes a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. But if you're not prepared... If you're not prayed up, I'm going to promise you this, you're not going to make it through temptation. Now notice something else Jesus said here. He said, watch, ye, watch and pray that you enter not to temptation. Now he said prayer is a safeguard. Watching is a safeguard. But he didn't say temptation would go away. He said, watch and pray for your sake that you don't cross the threshold into temptation. Here's what he said. He said, the spirit is willing. Now, all of us have a willing spirit. We want to obey God. We want to live for the Lord. We don't want to succumb to temptation. We don't want to do something that would, would displease our Lord. But he said this, the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. I mean, we need to come to the realization that every one of us has a weak flesh. It doesn't matter how strong we are. I mean, we've got to be transparent about ourselves. We have a weak flesh. There's nobody so strong they cannot fall. There's nobody so strong they cannot succumb to temptation. We have a weakened flesh. He says we must watch and pray. The temptation to compromise and follow the crowd. I think that's what Paul's thinking about there. The temptation to be complacent and falling asleep. We need to watch our tongues. We need to watch against temptation. But I think there's a third thing. Notice if, we, if you would with me, please, uh, first, um, first uh, Timothy, Second Timothy 4, 5. Our watch must be in totality. It must be in total. Paul, as he's writing to Timothy... Timothy had heard Paul preach these things over and over again. I thank God for people who, who've bared with me all these years and hear me, hear me preach the same things over and over again. But he had to remind Timothy, he says, listen, I can hear the axe being sharpened and the execution is going to take my head off, so I've got to get, these are the last things I'm going to say. And he said, watch thou in all things. And he just kind of summed it up. Not just your tongue, not just temptation. He said, in all things. And he listed some things before and some things after. And that's reminded us, our watchfulness must be in all things. We must be careful to set a watch from the deception of COVID-19 and wherever this vaccination thing goes. Uh, we must set a watch from the deception of feeling sorry for ourselves through suffering. We must set a watch from the deception of fear. And by the way, as I said Sunday night, we must set a watch against the deception of the Antichrist spirit that's out there. We must set a watch. Paul said, be guarded. We must put our defenses up and watching for things that could set us apart, that could to get us, to set us up for a father. So number one, we must be guarded. Number two, would you notice this? He says, stand fast in the faith. Now first he said, watch ye. We must be guarded. Secondly, he's telling us we must have grit. We must have grit. We must set, we must be daunting. We must, uh, dauntless. We must be, we must set our feet strong. He says we need to stand fast in the Lord. And he says specifically to stand fast in faith because he dealt with a lot of doctrinal and faith issues with the church. Now, Paul, 
Paul referenced that again to the church at Thessalonica as he was dealing with the spirit of the Antichrist. And he said this in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. He said, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or or by our our epistle. So Paul is saying, listen, I've given you a lot of Bible. I've given you a lot of doctrine. I've told you a lot of things that are happening, trends in in our area. I've told you about these things. I've told you about contemporary theology in our day. And so he says, listen, you need to stand fast and hold the traditions that have been passed down to you. Now, we've tried to do that for all these years. Because that's a, that's a hallmark of the church. That's a hallmark of the faith. We need to stand fast in faith. We need to realize that the mantle that's being passed to us by, in terms of the Word of God and the doctrine of the Word of God, we're to stand fast in that. Now, to get a feel for that, we must understand, it's telling us that we're standing our ground. We must stand our ground and let the adversary know that he is not taking our land. We are standing our ground, not letting the adversary take our land. Now, go with me to 2 Samuel for a moment. Look at an example here. Here's a Bible example of this. 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23, notice verses 11 and 12. If you'll turn there, we have, the, we have a wonderful story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible about a man by the name of Shammah. Shammah is one of David's mighty men. He's number three listed in the list of the mighty men there. And the Bible says in verse 11, And after him, that's after Eliezer, and after Adino the Ezrite, he says, After him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite. And the Philistines were gathered together into a troop where was a piece of ground full of lentils. And the people fled from the Philistines. But he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it and slew the Philistines. And the Lord wrought a great victory. Now, in those two verses right there, we see Shammah exemplifying for us standing fast in the faith. Number one, would you notice the asset there? There's an asset. The asset was a ground full of lentils. Uh, Did you notice that? A ground full full of lentils. Lentils was a staple that they ate. It was, it was barley. It was like barley. I mean, it was their staple for the Jews, just like rice would be in Asian countries. It was a staple, and it was a ground full of lentils. In fact, it was somebody's ground that was given them by inheritance, and it was to be passed on for future generations. And so this ground was ready for harvesting. It was full of lentils. It was ready for someone to get it. They had waited all, those, all these months. They had, they had sown the seed. They had cultivated the ground. They had sown the seed. It had got irrigation it started growing and they took care of it they watched it and it was ready for harvesting and now come down the philistines because the philistines knew just like every every enemy does if you're going to attack someone attack their food supply destroy their infrastructure attack their food supply and they said let's go after this ground of lentils they tried it before and they were successful they said they would do it again and so the philistines notice the bible says we see this asset there's this piece of ground full of lentils it was ground that should have been important to people there it was an asset it was an asset not a liability There's a second thing we see. We see the assault. The Bible says the Philistines were gathered together. I looked at that. That kind of jumped out at me. The words gathered together. It's sad. Hey, listen to me, Christian. It's sad that the devil's crowd is more together than God's crowd. It's sad that different factions who have different weird beliefs outside of a local New Testament church, they can gather together and be more united than the church of Jesus Christ. That's sad. It's sad that the devil's crowd can get more excited about certain things that, that, that fire them up and they'll go protesting in the streets and burn things down. And we can barely get muster a group of people to get excited about coming to church and giving out tracts and telling people about Jesus Christ. I mean, it's amazing. The Philistines were gathered together. Listen, the devil does a better job of getting a crowd together than God's people do in getting together. Think about that. 
So there was an assault. The Philistines came down to attack the ground. Their goal was to seize that land. Can I tell you something tonight? The devil is always out after land. He went after Naboth's vineyard. He went after other ground. Listen, the devil's after your inheritance. He's after your ground. He's after your, he's after your spiritual fruitfulness. He's out to take that which God has given to you. Well, there's the asset. There's the assault. Notice there's the abandonment. Would you notice this? The people fled from the Philistines. That included the owners of the land. Do you ever think about that? That was their inheritance. They were not to let it go. The people fled. You know what they said? A ground full of lentils is not worth protecting. They said a, a ground full of barley is not worth protecting. But you know what? The spirit of, that God's people need to have, it is worth protecting. The church is worth protecting. The word of God is worth protecting. Our virtue is worth protecting. Holiness is worth protecting. Reputations are worth protecting. Listen, those things by God are worth protecting, but there is an abandonment. But notice there is an apologist. And the apologist here was Shama. Shama, the son of Agi, the Herite, one man, one man, it wasn't even his ground. It was one man who stood up there and he said, you know what, if you guys don't defend it, I'll defend it. And the Bible says Shama stood up as an apologist. And the Bible says in verse 12, he stood or stood fast in the midst of the ground and he defended it. Listen, he pictures for me what it means to be a defender of the faith, for contending for the faith once delivered for the saints. He stood his ground as one man and he let the Philistines know this land is important. Maybe everybody else has forsaken it, but I'm staying here and I'm protecting it and I'm going to uphold it there. He was the defender of the ground. He was a defender of the things that are important. And we need to be defenders of the faith just like Shama. That's what Paul meant there by standing fast in faith. We see something else there. We see this asset. We see the assault. We see the abandonment. We see, we see this apologist. What you notice an astonishment. The very name Shama means astonishment. He did something very astonishing. He did something that nobody else in Israel would do. He stood his ground. He stood his ground. He protected that land. He says, we're going to keep the land, this ground full of barley field here. The Bible says here in verse 12, the Lord wrought a great victory. It wasn't Shama that got the victory. It was the Lord that wrought the victory. But God had to have a Shama there to defend the land who showed that he was courageous enough to defend it. He was there. Stand fast in the faith. Let me give you some things tonight quickly we need to stand fast for. Number one, we need to stand fast against contextualization. Contextualization that is seeker sensitive and wants to water down gospel. We need to be careful of over-contextualization. I, I'm for the fact that we need, to be, we need to be sensitive to the culture and all these type of things, but we don't, we, don't bring the, we don't bring ourselves down to the culture. We bring the culture up to the level of the gospel. Stand fast against contextualization. Let's stand fast against hyper-grace. We've talked about that. Let's stand fast against Calvinism. Let's stand fast against compromise. And let me just say this. We need to stand fast as things are shifting. We must remind ourselves of something that I, I, I've said this many, many times. It's something that, that, I was, that was given to me by, by Dr. Ed Nelson. Our theology dictates our music, and music does not take, dictate our theology. And let me tell you something today. The music is being dictated in churches by not only the world. Music is being dictated in churches not only by the world, but it's being dictated by other churches and by Bible colleges. Let me tell you tonight. Bible colleges, seminaries, other churches, church threads, they do not dictate music in a church. God dictates the music in a church. Music, listen, theology dictates music, not music dictates theology. The Bible is worth our defending. The church is worth defending. Jesus Christ is worth exalting. We need to stand fast in faith. Be, have some grit. Number three, would you notice this? Again, Paul's giving these, these principles of essential business for the, for the Christian. He said, watch ye, be guarded. 
Stand fast in the faith, have grit. Number three, he said, quit you like men. Now, let me, let me pause here. He didn't say quit being men. Just to, just to clarify, they meant. Our culture may be telling you, he's not telling you to quit being men. He's not telling you to change what God made you. Amen. The phraseology there is quit your tendency of being non-manly. And what I mean by that, not confrontational, not courageous, lacking conviction, non-committal. And he's saying, quit you. But be like men in the faith. Now, biblical manliness, I've, I've got preacher friends who are pretty redneck, amen, you know? And their idea of, man, and I, I'm not, not against, I'm for it, but it's more external, more than is internal. And biblical manliness in the Bible is internal. For instance, true manliness does not back down from hardships and stress and difficulties and the challenges of life. I've watched men who I thought were very strong, I mean very strong, role models for me, crumble under pressure. I've watched good Christians quit on something that I thought, how could they quit on that? Manliness, biblical manliness, the Bible's talking about here, demands confrontational, being confrontational. It demands being, being someone that can be confronted, and it demands also having courage and conviction. So let me give you a few things here on that, okay? Number one, in being gallant, being gallant here, number one, we've got to be cultivated, men and ladies. We've got to be cultivated. This is men and ladies. Be cultivated. Be cultivated. Now, what does that mean? Look at 1 first, first Corinthians 13, 11. 1 Corinthians 13, 11. I mean, this is a whole message to itself. I don't have time for that. Here's what, here's what Paul said. He's dealing, with, he's dealing with the matter of Christian love and dealing with people. And this is what he said. He said, when I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. You know, I processed things. I thought as a child. Okay, now you think with me for just a minute. Unless you work with children, you tend to forget how they speak, how they think. And how they react. Paul said, when I was like that, I spoke as a child, understood as a child, I thought as a child. He said, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Cultivation and manliness, and you want to write this down. Cultivation and manliness means, means being mature about things. It's having a level of maturity about things. And so Paul said, when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now he's saying, men, grow up. Now grow up. Now let me give you some things here tonight, okay? We, you know, for all of us, and he's talking about having this manly spirit, if I can say that, this, this, this courageous spirit, this maturity of spirit, this cultivated spirit in us. Here's some things that I think the Lord put in my heart we need, to, we need to think about. Number one, we need to grow up in our spirit. We need to be manly in our spirit. We need to grow up in our spirit. We've, we've got to be careful of just, you know, childhood temper tantrums and spoiled child mentality carrying over into our practices. We need to be people, as we think about maturity, uh, uh, mature people are thankful and they say so. Mature people are conscientious. Mature people are, are someone that can be corrected, but they're also someone that stands firm about things. Uh, mature people are kind. Uh, they, they, don't, they, don't, they don't act like the world revolves around them. They realize it's not about them. It's about Jesus Christ. So we need to grow up in our spirit. Hey, we need to grow up in our senses. We need to grow up in our sense. 
Uh, the Bible was just reading through this in Proverbs the other day about understanding. Being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Amen? Uh, we need to grow up in our psyche. He says, stop thinking like a child. Philippians 4.8 ought to be something we, we embody for, for 2021, that we think on these things, as Paul said. If there be any, anything good, and if there be of a good report, be honest and true, and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we need to grow up in our senses. We need to grow up in our psyche. We need to think on these things. I mean, I'm going to ask you tonight, what do you think about the most? Do you take time to think about these things that are good? And I tell you, there are things that, and the devil throws these curveballs at us, and he shoots those fiery darts, and you know how fiery darts work. I mean, fiery darts, those fiery arrows, or arrows are sent on fire, so they can, they can, they can do the killing touch. They hit, they hit a person, it comes at a velocity, it's very quick, it's already bad enough if it pierces your armor, or gets into your, hits a vital part of your body, it pier- but if it's, a, if it's an arrow that's on fire, I mean, it's just about done you in there. And we have to think about the fact, the devil is always pointing, he's got arrows pointed at us at all the time, He's looking for that moment where we turn ourselves and there's that weak spot is exposed and boom, he shoots off that arrow and that arrow comes flying and hits its mark and we've got to be careful that we guard ourselves. We need to grow up in these areas. Then we need to grow up in our soul. The Bible says the soul of the diligent should be made fat. Can I encourage you even before we have New Year goals and all that, that you just make a determination that you're going to grow your soul life, that you're going to feed your soul, that you're going to get something out of it, that you're going to spend time meditating on the Word of God, you'll spend time in prayer, that you'll isolate time alone with God so that isolated time God can work in you. I'm just saying today, there's the cultivation aspect of where he says, quit you, be like men. There must be this cultivation. But notice the commitment. We must be committed. Now I'm going to give you some thoughts here real quickly. First Chronicles 11 to 12. We're not going to turn there. First Chronicles 11 to 12 speaks about the mighty men that joined David. I thought it was kind of interesting how the writer of Chronicles did a very masterful job of writing about how all these men came to David. And his description about them is that they were mighty men. He talked about their traits. He talked about their assets. He talked about why they were valuable. And the Bible says things like this. It says in chapter 11, verse 10 of 1 Chronicles, these mighty men strengthened themselves with him. I thought that was a great phrase. They strengthened themselves with him. They were strong, but they became stronger with him. It says something there about synergy. These mighty men understood commitment means synergy. It means symbiosis. It means that we work together. It means we cooperate together. We're advancing the cause of the kingdom together. And so they were, they were men that strengthened themselves with them. The Bible says they were able men. They were able men. They were competent, and yet they were conscientious. They were loyal men. They joined because they believed what David believed. These were men equal to, and in fact, I think many of these men were greater than David. But what's amazing is how they synergized and had symbiosis, and they were able to coalesce together like this and work together. No wonder David had a mighty kingdom, and as long as they stayed right with God, they never had a defeat. And as long as they stayed right with God, the giants were being defeated, and they were knocking down the enemies of the kingdom, and they were advancing against the Philistines and the Moabites and the Ammonites and all the rest of them there. I mean, think about some of those men that David had that accepted the challenges of hardship and confrontation. That's manliness. Adino de Ezraite, he slew 800 men with his spear at one time. Now, if you've ever wrestled men, man, that's an endurance sport. You play football and you're a defender, you're trying to, you're trying to keep somebody from advancing, you're a linebacker standing the line. I mean, that's, that's, that's a lot of exertion. You're chasing after somebody that caught a football. You're trying to chase them down. There's a lot of exertion there. It's a, I mean, those are heavy contact sports. 
You imagine this guy, Adino there's right, standing his ground with a spear, 360 degrees around him. He slays 800 men. The Bible didn't tell us if he got scratched or injured. I imagine he might have. But the Bible doesn't say that. So, but we know one thing. He was victorious. I mean, this guy, this guy exemplifies what Paul's talking about. Quit you like men. I mean, he didn't stop in the middle and say, man, I wish where's David and everybody else. He didn't worry about that. He says, I've got to defend the land. He wasn't crying about it. He wasn't looking over his shoulder where everybody else said. He just knew one thing. I could defend the land. He says, somebody's got to do something about it. He wasn't worried about anybody joining him. He just said, I've got to do my job. Hey, there's a Dino that's right. Then you look at the next guy. The next guy is Eliezer. The Bible tells in Chronicles and 2 Samuel about Eliezer. Now, Eliezer, when you study the passage a little bit, you, you read there that just like with Shammah, people, people abandoned him too. It was just him and David there. You know what he said? He saw David there. He said, I'm not going to leave David there by himself. I think David's well capable of defending himself, but I'm not going to leave him there by himself. You know what the Bible says? The Bible describes this way. Eliezer fought. He says, he smote the Philistines until his hand was weary. You ever have a weary hand from hammering? Using a, a pile driver or some kind of a saw. Have you ever, you ever just done it for, uh, for a long period of time and your hand starts going like this? You ever have that happen to you? It starts shaking and you can feel the twitching going up your, your, your forearms and up to your biceps and up to the back side, your triceps, your dirty. You ever have that happen? You feel that you feel that shaking there and you try to go back to it, but it's hard to do it. Can you imagine this guy? He's fighting there. The Bible says until his hand grew weary. I mean, he's shaking, but he held on. And the Bible says this, he didn't drop his sword. He smote the Philistines, so his hand was weary, and his hand claved to the sword. Hey, listen, you better hold on to your Bible. And these days, you better hold on to your Bible. You better hold on to God. His hand claved to the sword. You know what clave means? We get our word cleave from that. It became one with. The word cleave means to become one with. His hand became one with his sword. You know what God wants for you and I? He wants you and I in our lives to become one with his word. I want you to wrap your life around the Word of God. Here's this man. He claved to the sword. I mean, we got Eliezer, and then we talked about Shammah. Hey, how about Benaiah? Now, Benaiah, to me, was, you know, and it's, it's interesting, he got promoted later on in life, and actually became very instrumental to the transition of the kingdom, and, and Solomon had to have a Benaiah. By the way, every church needs a Benaiah like this guy. I mean, here's Benaiah. The Bible says he fought two lion-like men of Moab. He fought a lion in the midst of a pit in the time of snow. Figure that one out. And he felt an Egyptian that was much taller, much more skilled than he was. He went, the Egyptian came with a spear. He came with a staff. He snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed the Egyptian with his own spear. And that guy's, that was a bad dude, amen, you know? That was one bad dude. What am I saying here? It's commitment. We read this and we think, well, that's fantastic. Those are heroic stories. This is real life. <laughs> Just fantastic. This is real life. Quit you like men. Maturity, commitment. Then number four, would you notice this? He said, watch ye, be guarded, stand fast in the faith, have grit, quit you like men, be gallant. But notice number four, be strong, be gutsy, have some guts about what you're doing. The Bible at critical times as we study it, Joshua and David and these men of God, every time, Paul in Ephesians 6, he told the church at Ephesus, be strong. Be strong. He, he said, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Here to the church of Corinth, he just said, be strong. You know, when you have, when death comes into your home, you've got to be strong. When sorrow gets you, you better be strong. When you go through a trial that nothing in life could prepare you for, you better be strong. 
When you're rejected, you better be strong. If something in your life fails, you better be strong. And you can't be strong yourself. You've got to be strong in the Lord. You go through, you go through an extreme health trial, you've got to be strong. You've got to be strong. You say, well, I need a support network. You know what the Bible says? You better be strong. Temptation comes, you better be strong. Finances get tight, you better be strong. Things get difficult in your marriage, you better be strong. Your children don't turn out right. You find out your children rebellious, you better be strong. You better be strong against secularization. Hey, secularization through the public school system has got, got the hearts of children. Children, before they even turn six or seven, they don't want anything to do with God. They, have, they want something to entertain them. Parents feel the same way. Secularization is the humanism at the nth level now, working through our society and turning people away from God. I'm saying tonight, we've got to be strong. You've got to be strong when others quit. You're going to be tempted. If other people, get, other people quit, other people get disgruntled, if people get dis- disillusioned about things, and they quit, and they leave, or they start talking, about things and they get you on board with it, you better be strong against those things. Because I'll tell you, when gossip comes, our proclivity is, when gossip comes and bad news comes, our proclivity is to go with the gossip and bad news rather than to say, I'm going to stand my ground like Shama and stand for the faith. And we're going to just say, you know what? I'm not going to drift like everybody is. I'm going to stand strong. The reason why a lot of young men are drifting, they haven't learned to be strong. Why a lot of older men are dropping their sword, they haven't learned to be strong. You better be strong when you get knocked down. You better be strong when the devil gives you a bloody nose. Hey, Paul got knocked down. He got, he got stoned left outside the city of Lystra. They thought he was dead. And the disciples around and his friends around said, come on, Paul, get up. Come on, Paul, get up. Hey, Paul was strong. He got up. And you know how strong he was? He went right back into the city. Instead of confronting that city with, with anger, he confronted them with the love of Jesus Christ. And listen, they didn't bother him anymore at Lystra. You read your Bible. They never bothered him again anymore after that. And he went back there many times to tell them, you need to grow in the Lord. Be strong when your friends turn on you. Be strong when your network of friends decreases. Be strong when, whatever it may be, Paul said in all this, be strong. Listen, you look at the church at Corinth, everything they had to go through, Paul had just two words for them. You better be strong. You better be strong. Hey, there's going to be a time when the church is going to come back together full strength. We better be strong. Be gutsy. Paul, uh, uh, the Lord told Joshua, he says, now listen, I've given you all the land, every place to sow your foot should tread upon that I've given to you. But he said, Paul, he said, Joshua, you better be strong. And he said like three or four times, you better be strong, Joshua. Because he said, you've got some battles here, you better be strong. Finally, notice the last thing. We see four things he's given us already. He says, watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. But you notice verse 14, it seems like an oddball statement here, but really it's not. It's one last exhortation for essential business. One last exhortation. And it's the string that ties the package together. It's the string and the bow that makes the Christmas gift presentable. He said, be guarded. He said, be gallant. Be gutsy. But notice, finally, he says, be gracious. Let all your things, all your things be done with charity. And instead of re-quoting 1 Corinthians 13, because he's already told them this, he said, all your things be done with charity. As we know, charity is the pinnacle of spiritual maturity, according to Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1. It is the spirit of graciousness that must embody how we do what we do. When that spirit of charity or agape love or being merciful and loving as God is to us, 
is our emphasis. Here, here's what happens here. And, and think this is where Paul is going at, because if you think about everything he's dealt with. A mature believer will take a molehill and turn it into dust. He takes a mountain and turns it into a plain. That's what he's saying there. Let all your things be done with charity. He takes a molehill, instead of making it into a mountain, he turns that molehill into dust. And instead of taking a mountain and letting it become more mountains or, or a range of mountains, he turns it into a plain. Let all your things be done with charity. He's basically telling us, be gracious. Be gracious. Don't let the familiar become contemptuous. Be gracious and not mean-spirited. Be gracious and not a Pharisee. Be gracious and do as Paul Jesus had to tell these people. He said, do not strain a gnat and swallow a camel. That's a, that's a great analogy there. Be gracious and put down the spear in your hand. Remember Saul? Every time you see him with David, he's got a spear in his hand. He's ready to throw the spear. Hey, put the spear down. Be gracious. Uh, be gracious and don't be adversarial. Be gracious and don't, don't come across as a jerk, guys. Be gracious and be accountable. Be gracious and have a servant's heart. You are here to be to, to serve, not to be served. He's saying, let all your things be done with charity. You know what, what the hallmark of a church that attracts people, this magnetic, is the spirit of grace that's overflowing its members from the moment a person drives in the parking lot. There's this gracious, hey, we're glad to have you here. Let me help you find your space and let me help you get registered. And you got some kids there. Let me show you where to take your kids. And, uh, you know, let's give you a tour around the buildings and so forth. And why don't you meet our pastor and why, this and, and this. Oh, listen, you, you know, you, oh, we know this information about you. Oh, great. You know what? Let's enroll you into on this adult growth group and let, let's have you meet some people. Oh, you, you, you do this for a living? Hey, I want you to meet a friend of mine that does this for a living there and this type of thing. I mean, the spirit of graciousness is where they come in. They feel like they've never been so welcome. They've never been so loved. But fast forward six months from now. Six months from now, that person's still getting loved upon. They still feel that sense of love, and that graciousness. They're more, they're more assimilated to the church and more involved. And we've got to know them even more. And we see some rough spots about them and some things that are maybe perhaps a little bit different. But you know what? The spirit of graciousness and the spirit of a church doesn't go away. It just continues to love on that person and accepts them and helps them along the way. And it picks the fallen person up and someone has got some rough edges along the way. We smooth those rough edges out and help them along the way. I mean, the spirit of graciousness is something that's so magnetically, it keeps people in churches. It brings people in churches. It's the thing. It's the glue that holds all these other four essentials together. It's the bow and the, it's the rope, the, 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 the string and the bow that keeps it together. He says, let all your things be done with charity. Now that being said, you know what he's doing to them? He says, now for you to understand that, you've got to go back to 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 13, he says, love beareth all things. Love is kind, love is patient, love, love thinketh no evil. I mean, that's, that's what he's talking about there, you know. So, you know, he comes off real, you know, he's, he's commending Timothy, he's commending Apollos, and then right there the Holy Spirit stops and says, hey, Paul, I need you to tell the church some things. You give them some models to think about, now I want you to give them some essential business practices. As I close tonight, I think the Lord gives us these essential business practices as a reminder that the Lord could come at any time. If the Lord should come any time, watch ye. Stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. Let all your things be done with charity. Essential business. The government defines essential business based upon what will feed you, what will care for your body. God says essential business is what cares for your soul and the souls of other people. That's essential business. Essential business is being in church. Not just, not just the church, but it's being in church. It's living for God. Essential business is our relationship with the Lord. 
May God help us tonight to grasp our hearts and thoughts on essential business. 